I am preaching from Acts 5 today, but I invite you to turn to John 21 to begin the day our message with. But So if you want to be turning in your Bible to John chapter 21. I felt like I'm a little claustrophobic back here. So I wrote a sermon originally back at the end of August. And uh, I believe it was the Holy Spirit and not my fickle mind who told me that, you know, if, if the baby comes, I'm sure I'll be rewriting this message. <laughs> and that's what I did. I had a sermon all ready to go. And then Saturday morning, Christy and I went and we had a baby. I called Dean and said, hey, uh, can you fill in? And he said, yeah. And so I have an unpreached sermon on this very same text because I wrote last week. I used some of my old sermon, but... I wrote a message last week in between trying to be home for Christy, Calvin, and Landon. And so I want to believe it was the Holy Spirit who told me to do that, not just my fickle mind. So on faith, I'm going to say it was the Holy Spirit. We listened to two passages read this morning, and some of you are like, I missed Proverbs. I really missed it today. Well, you have it in your Bibles. You can go home and read it. Well, we'll read it also next Sunday. But I hope you you get the vignettes of of Peter's life in those two texts. A, A great moment where... Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Chosen One. Uh, Matthew, one of the apostles who was present for that event, would record that Jesus told Peter that God revealed this to you. But then Luke also told us that Jesus went on to explain his suffering. The ultimate end of the Messiah's ministry would not be one of, of triumph in the earthly or human sense, but one of rejection, condemnation, and death. So, so much so that when these events unfold, Peter's confession of Christ doesn't stand up to the reality that when the rejection and the condemnation and the humiliation of the Messiah begins, here is Peter denying he ever knew him. Before we dive into our text today, I'm going to bring to our mind one more episode in Peter's life that's going to frame for us the events transpiring in our text. Namely, again, John 21, we find an encounter between the resurrected Lord Jesus and Peter. The last encounter that Peter had with Jesus before this encounter we read about was that heart-wrenching denial that Peter had. And I just get chills whenever Bill read and said, the Lord Jesus looked at him. (laughs) I told you, kid. (laughs) So what's Jesus going to say now that he's literally risen from the dead, now that he's talking to his friend Peter once more, the leader among equals. And so let's hear these words in John 21, verses 15 through 19, which states, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. With that conversation in mind, now you can turn over to Acts 5, as we will hear the word of God over the passage we're studying today. So if you remember about five years ago, our last time together, <laughs> we, we began to study this episode of the apostles' lives. It was a familiar one and a recurring one in Acts because the apostles are incarcerated. And I said that they were incarcerated for the gospel, both literally and physically. Literally because their preaching in the temple got them into prison. But physically, or that was... Anyways, anyways, they're, they're miraculously released by angels, and what do they do? They go right back to the proverbial ground zero and began preaching again. Some would say they're gluttons for punishment, but I would say that they're incarcerated by the gospel. They can't do anything but preach it. So the gospel is so amazing that they must continue preaching. And so now I ask you to please stand and read with me Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. So you're going to stand for a while. But don't worry, I preached on 17 through 32, so now we just have a few verses to finish for today. But let's read it all in context, beginning with verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set before them the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so the Holy Spirit, So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be a somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your word is a weighty thing. We dare not look over it or study it lightly. But rather, Holy Spirit, we trust that you've inspired the writing of these very words that we have read and that we're studying. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would now illuminate it for us, that you would glorify Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be open to receive his word, that we would want to love and serve and follow him because we have get a clearer picture of him today. Say what it is you desire and get me out of the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The gospel provokes strong emotions in people. It should. Paul says that the gospel is, in Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Do you hear that? <laughs> can you wrap your mind around that weighty sentence? Because it is more than just words, but can you picture it or comprehend it? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, the good news that we don't work ourselves to God, but He worked Himself to us. That we don't by our own righteousness find salvation, but we by His righteousness find salvation. That we don't curry favor with God, but He has favor over His people. The very power of God for salvation. The very acting on behalf of God to save people from sin, hell, and the rightly deserved wrath of God is accessed by believing in Him. And hear this, James would warn us heavily and Paul would tell us in Galatians that there in the definition of the word believe is encompassed true heart change, true righteous works, that one cannot simply believe in God for salvation and remain unchanged or unmoved by it. But right belief, if I really believe in God who has acted on my behalf to save me, then I should respond in doing something about it. That's not performance, but that's what true love does. See, I knew I loved Christy early on after meeting her. You know what that made me do? It made me do things. Uh, it made me pursue her. It made me want her. It made me buy her flowers, call her up, visit her for coffee, meet with her at places. And eventually it made me sit down with her parents and propose the idea of mar marrying her. And after the fourth time, they said yes. I mean, I mean, <laughs> hopefully I'm still loving her actively. 
But that's the kind of faith coupled with hope in God for salvation that breeds active, effortful, work-producing love. Do you hear that? That's what the disciples have. True belief. That's what Peter has. That's why he has said over and over to the people in the book of Acts so far, this Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus whom you hung on a tree, your very murder of Him saves your souls. He is your only hope. It is His death that your sins can die. And it's in His resurrection that you too can rise again and live a new life. That's the only way of righteousness before God Almighty. But the religious higher-ups don't like that. See, they want the glory of their salvation, not God. The religious higher-ups don't have pastoral shepherding hearts, but rather they crave admiration and exaltation. Let me tell you right now, if you don't know this, I'm a sinner. I believe that 100% of you probably have this righteous living thing down better than I do. So don't put me on a pedestal. But the religious higher-ups of Jesus' day, and some in our day, they want the admiration. They pray in public not to lead people to the presence of God, but rather to try and astound people with their fake piety. They dole out new laws and traditions every day to keep tender-hearted folks who really want to be righteous, either in despair because they can never live up to it, or in pride because they can manage to keep the laws. And so when Peter and the disciples come along and they say, hey, it's, it's not your righteousness that saves you, it's, it's Jesus, we understand whenever we read in verse 33, when they, the Sanhedrin, the religious people, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. See, the gospel provokes strong emotions in people. The gospel has brought Peter to this place, this imprisonment for the umpteenth time. And it is the gospel that has made the religious higher ups kill God when he became flesh. And it is the gospel that has them enraged at Jesus' disciples right now so that they want to fulfill Jesus' words by the seaside to Peter that Peter is on the trajectory with the way he's talking to go where he doesn't want to go and to die a death that glorifies God. But this isn't Peter's time. See, the Sanhedrin is incensed until they are invited to reason. We read in verse 34 through 39, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be a somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Let them be. (laughs) It'll come to nothing if it's not of God. Now, this is rather ironic. If you know Gamaliel, he is the teacher of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul. And 
Saul or Paul doesn't seem to be as relaxed about the Christians as much as Gamaliel is. Nevertheless, Gamaliel, Gamaliel says, hey, Theudas was a rebel leader among the Jews. He gained a following, but it came to nothing. History records this man. And after this, there was another man named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas was a common name back then, and he tried to do the same. Now, history is, very, is actually silent on this exact Judas. The only place where we get this information about Judas is what you're reading. However, the historian Josephus records that rebel leaders like this were a dime a dozen. <laughs> and like I said, Judas was a common name. And, so, and I trust the Bible to be an accurate historical record, obviously. But Judas's cause came to nothing. He perished. God obviously wasn't with him, says Gamaliel. So, Gamaliel reasons, if this cause of Jesus comes to nothing because it's not of God, it will come to nothing. And I need that. <laughs> I should stop gesturing, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if it persists, obviously it is of God. It could be that Gamaliel is playing on the fear of man, the reputation problem that the Sanhedrin has. Because we read about this both in the gospel accounts, but we think about just as early as or recent as Acts 5.26, when the Sanhedrin went to go pick up the apostles, it says the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So Gamaliel is using reasoning, such as take care what you are about to do with these men, right? People are watching. History will record it. Verse 39, if it is of God, you will be found opposing him. Everyone's going to see your folly. You were wrong. People will indict you as the enemies. It's interesting that Gamaliel is not at all defending the apostles. <laughs> as so much that he is just playing on the fear of man problem that the Sanhedrin has. But he seems effective. Somewhat. It's interesting what the Sanhedrin does because it's a bit of a compromise. It's, we'll listen, but we'll beat them up. <laughs> we read, picking it up at the end of verse 39, So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the apostles are called back in after Gamaliel's advice, and the Sanhedrin beat them. Now we just have one word in this verse to tell us that they were beat and we move on. Oh, they got beat. And then what's next? So we have a second or two to internalize that. And to conceptualize that in our minds. See, the beat in here is the same word used in the scriptures for flogging. So this was lining up all 12 apostles and behind them are temple guards holding triple straps of leather. And then on each man whipping them 39 times on their bare back. Maybe each apostle got to endure it at the same time. Maybe there wasn't enough. So three at a time, I don't know. But there was likely an hour or two of whipping and beating when it was all said and done. And to put this in perspective, the pain and the harm done, people were known to have died from this. So the disciples were literally in the balance of life or death with this one word, whipping. I think it's like this. 
The Sanhedrin is maybe compromising. We won't kill them, but we're going to scare them, Gamaliel. And they chose punishment that, well, it's not death, but if they happen to die as others have under this punishment, well, it's not that we outright sought to execute them. Sure, we'll have a little bit of a legal battle with the Romans who don't let us execute people, but flogging. See, in the Olivet Discourse, four of the disciples ask Jesus when the temple will fall. And leading up to the destruction of the temple, Jesus said to his apostles, as Mark records for us in Mark 13, verse 9, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Delivered to councils, beaten in synagogues, So the Sanhedrin is compromising, like I said. Gamaliel's got a point, but if we have any say in the matter, we want this to cease right now. We'll scare them. We'll push them a little bit so that they might see that their fate might be the same as the Lord they serve. But then emphatically they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. If I got in jail for preaching about Jesus the first time, Maybe I would have shut up (laughs) then and there. If an angel showed up and then released me and charged me to preach again exactly where you were arrested. (laughs) I may have been tried, I may have tried to pull a Jonah, but since I read Jonah, maybe I would have stayed on land. Maybe a big rhino would eat me, I don't know. If I was whipped 39 times on my back and told by people who whipped me, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And no angel intervened in that whipping, nor did I hear any angelic voices. Hey, don't listen to them. Go back to the preaching. i got to be honest. I don't think I would be feeling or doing what the apostles do here. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus The gospel provokes strong emotions in people. The gospel has taken one man, Peter, and made him declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, the power of God for salvation. And I pray that all of us are there. I pray that we are there, that that we have declared that Jesus is our righteousness, righteousness, that Jesus is our salvation, that Jesus is our way, and that Jesus has the truth, and Jesus is the life, that Jesus takes the punishment for our sins, Jesus lives the life that we should live, Jesus dies the death that we deserve to die, Jesus gives the Spirit to us that empowered Him for righteous living, so He empowers us for righteous living, so we need not live in fear under the law, but we live in love and grace and practiced by the Spirit of God. I pray that we've been there. The Gospel has also taken Peter to a dark place. The Gospel was too overwhelming. It was too scary to where Peter backed out one time, three times, when the very story of the Gospel was transpiring before his eyes, Peter denied the Christ he once professed. He ran in fear. The gospel provoked strong emotions in people. And when evil people were murdering God in the flesh, the very Messiah, Peter, wanted nothing to do with that suffering. Peter 
wanted to run from the weight and the wake of the gospel's strong provocations and people. The gospel still does that today. See, the gospel, like Jesus says to Peter by the seaside, still calls people to places they don't want to go. To suffering. To mission fields. To encounters with evil, trying, difficult people. To encounter our own sin and our own shame and our own grief. And the gospel invites us to the darkest places of our lives to see if we have enough faith and trust in Jesus in the gospel that he can and does and still redeems. Peter was there. Peter was faced three times, just like the three times he denied Jesus. He was faced three times with the chance to repent and redeem and restore what he had declared three times in denial. And Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Friends, the gospel wins. The gospel wins. The gospel has moved Peter to feed his sheep. The gospel moved Peter beyond his sin and shame and back out into the fray, into the suffering, into the proclamation of the gospel's power. That everyone who believes in Jesus is invited to the very power of God for salvation. And Peter is back before the very people who murdered Jesus. And this time Peter isn't denying Jesus This time Peter is saying to their very faces, he is the Messiah. I was with him. I do believe in him. And Peter is whipped in danger of dying and he doesn't whimper out into the streets defeated. Peter basically says, if I'm dying, I've got to tell everyone I can before I die. And the gospel wins. Because when the disciples are beat down, their spirits are lifted up to suffer for Jesus' name's sake. And when the disciples are told to keep the gospel quiet, the gospel gets louder. And when the gospel is quenched in the temple, it gets taken to the streets. The gospel provokes strong emotions in people. What is it doing in your life? Do you see in some way or another how you can identify with Peter and the disciples here? I don't know about you, and maybe it... Kind of is, I gave you a hint on how I framed this sermon, but I can identify with Peter's sins and hypocrisy. I proclaim Jesus as Lord, but with what I'm, with what I'm doing, am I denying his name? Even when I know Jesus is looking, am I living like I've never known him? Do you identify with Peter's suffering? Peter is doing all the right things. Listen to this, guys. Peter is 100% directly in the very will of God. He has responded obediently to the voice of an angel. How many of you can say you've done that? To go and proclaim Jesus in the temple, and now he is suffering. He's still in the very will of God. God has called Peter and the disciples to suffer for his namesake. Could it be that you're suffering is not useless. It's not beyond God's will, nor beyond God's plan, but could it be that you too are currently at a place because of the gospel, but you are where you had not desired to go? 
all the way back in January or February, I went to the clinic for some pain in my abdomen that just didn't seem right. Didn't seem normal. It ended up probably some passing infection that was just too hard to diagnose. Some of you remember in March, I went to the ER with what I thought to be heart trouble, definitely some chest pain. And I don't know if I'm having a pre-midlife crisis or what, but all years since, I had to say that because I don't think I'm old enough for a midlife crisis. <laughs> Whether it be pain in my chest or some other weird pain or situation, I've just been anxious. I've been living anxiously, thinking I'm going to die at age 29. It can happen. My wife and kids could be left without a husband and dad. One of the things that did come out of my follow-up on my chest pain, I was diagnosed with a mild case of general anxiety disorder. Hmm. That explains things. This is small potatoes to folks that I know that we all know who do have cancer. Some of our folks in here. Other folks who do have heart problems, more real problems than I think I have. But could it be that my messed up in the head anxiety disorder and your heart pain and your cancer and your digestive issues, your back pain and your suffering isn't pointless? but rather God can use it to refine you and me and He can use it to even share in the trials of others and could it be that He can even use it for the Gospel? And the Gospel wins. Floggings did not stop to the disciples. Charges from people in authority did not stop the disciples. Why did it not stop the disciples? Is it because they're fearless, obnoxious, stubborn, perfect or superhuman? Is it, it's because they weren't focused on their pain. They were focused on the Gospel. And the Gospel provokes strong action in people. And it can in you and me today. Let's pray to reorient our focus off of our own failures. Maybe our sinful failures. Maybe our bodily failures. And instead focus on the victory and the power that the Gospel wins and continues to drive us forward. As Paul says, let us not lose heart. I love that word heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Let's pray. Father, the joke was said this morning before Sunday school. Tell me the old, old story. It's for Alzheimer's because we're so quickly to forget. But that rings true for people of maybe a bit sounder mind than Alzheimer's. That sometimes we quickly forget what you have done through the person, work, and power of Jesus Christ. Father, that because of what you've done, you empower people like Peter who was a coward and ran away. You empower him to say in the faces of the very people he was afraid of, the truth of the gospel, because it is the power of God to save. Would you help us in every trial that we face? Would you remind us? Would you deafen or mute the enemy who would accuse us because of our sins that your death on the cross was not enough to save because it is enough to save? Father, would you propel us? Would you provoke strong emotion and strong action in us because of the gospel? Would you give us the confidence to share with friends and family? Would you give us the boldness to share when we know you want us to share and we're afraid of men like the Sanhedrin? 
But Father, also would you give us the comfort and the trying times and the suffering that we face, that it could be that we are very much in the will of God, but you've called us to suffer for these moments. But it's for a good reason. It's to display the gospel. Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, would you lift us up with these words throughout this week? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.